Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. It's Robert Samuels from The Washington Post. Post, this is Sarah Kaplan. Hi, this is Elahe Azadi with The Washington Post. Hey. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 5th. Today, how people in Washington, D.C. fought to preserve their music, and why U.S. women's soccer is so dominant on and off the field. Do you remember the first time that you saw or, like, passed outside the Metro PCS store? I do. I moved to the D.C. area in 2007 because I went to the University of Maryland. Marissa Lang is a reporter for The Post who covers D.C. Not Washington, like halls of power, political Washington, but the District of Columbia the city and the people who live here and the evolving local culture. Part of that culture is a type of music called go-go, music that ended up at the center of this recent battle between the city's cultural identity and the forces of gentrification. And that battle all started with one cell phone store in the middle of the district. I came down to that area a lot. I loved hanging out in Shaw. I would go out on U Street. And I was walking, and I just heard this, like, faraway music. I assumed it was someone's car. And as I got closer to that intersection at 7th and Florida, I realized it was coming from the store. And people were, you know, they're grooving as they're walking by. They're dancing. Like, I just remember my very first impression of that store was how much joy it gave to people. I remember the first time that I passed outside it. And it was just so loud. (laughs) And so, like, wonderfully brazen and, like, yeah, we are blasting this music to anyone who walks by and you will listen and you will enjoy. Yeah, it's it was great the first time I saw it. I'm from New York, so, like, loud noises don't phase me, but I, I loved it. So what is the music that they're playing? They're playing go-go music, which is really the soundtrack of D.C. It is D.C.'s homegrown funk music. It's sort of this blend of R&B, soul, funk, hip-hop, salsa. Like, it blends all this stuff together, and it's this very distinct sound. And why does this cell phone store blast go-go music. So it comes back to the owner. Donald Campbell of the store owner here. Don Campbell opened this store back in the 90s. 24 years. We opened up the summer of 1995. But before that, he opened a bunch of music venues in D.C. that were go-go venues. So he has always loved go-go music. It's always been a part of him personally and also his business. I've been collecting music since 1980. I used to be a club owner on 9th Street, and when I stopped 
when I closed down my club, I started playing music here. So I've been playing music outside since 24 years now. Yeah. So when he started selling back then what were pagers and you know other electronics, he also sold go-go tracks, cassette tapes. And they were mostly live recordings that he took either at his own music venues or elsewhere. It means a lot. I think it means a lot to the city. I think uh, Go-Go's the heartbeat of the city. I think it's, it's something people got used to. I, I played it every day. Make people happy. Make people happy. Sometimes they might be sad. They walk by the store and hear a song they heard 10 years ago and they like it. So the go-go music out front was a way to attract people to come into the store, and it was also a way for them to easily and quickly identify, this is somewhere I can go to get my music. I think one of the things that's important to know about go-go music, too, is that, yes, it's very D.C. music. It has real D.C. roots, but it's also very black D.C. music. Yes, absolutely. If you looked in the 90s, they wouldn't let go-go be played in the club. I think go-go was being accused of every crime that was going on. So after the club was over, somebody got in a fight or there was a shooting, they blamed it on the music. And that is part of its culture. I mean, it it started in the projects. It started in, like, Berry Farm and a lot of these neighborhoods that are very black and very poor. And so when you're talking about go-go, you're also talking about the culture. When the clock says two, it don't mean we're two because you and me, we're going to do it to three. Show you right. So... This store was just plugging along, blasting its music. Doing its thing. People were enjoying it. And then earlier this year, something happened. Someone happened. There is a new apartment complex, well, relatively new, that sprung up in the neighborhood over the last several years. Uh, And its residents are mostly affluent, much whiter than you would typically find in this neighborhood years ago. And that music became a nuisance to some of the residents of this building. It's called The Shea. It is a tall building. It has a huge sign that sort of looms over this whole intersection that says the Shea. And it is one of those sort of nouveau apartments that you see that comes with amenities. And there is a sense that it is one of these buildings that brings with it a certain class of people. It's super trendy. Very trendy. I think they have a pool on the rooftop. Very hip, very young. And even the name, the Shea, is just, it just, it like screams of, like, we want to be a luxury building for the new luxury class of D.C. Definitely. It stands out. And it's huge. And so someone in the building made some calls. They started with the city. They made a few noise complaints. After they built the new condos, we got one, co- one I guess, resident that's been very unhappy. She called the police department over 60, 70 times. She called the police department. Uh, they came out and meted the music, and it, it wasn't in violation. So I guess she called the fire department. So Mr. Campbell had uh, these city officials out on his doorstep taking noise readings of the music. He was within the legal range, so he didn't get cited, and they went away. And this resident, who apparently was not satisfied, then approached T-Mobile, which is the company that owns Metro PCS, which is the contract that this store has. And T-Mobile said, you need to cut the music. Which is wild. Because Absolutely. It's been, it's been going on for years. Yeah, 20-something years. And so then what happens? So they stop. They, they turn the music off. They, they have these huge speakers out front, and they moved them inside. They unplugged everything, and it went quiet. People thought they were closed. People were confused. They had their regulars coming by and being like, yo, where's the music? 
It was noticed by the neighbors, but it wasn't noticed by the whole city until a Howard University student took a video and she tweeted it using the hashtag DontMuteDC. And that's when everything took off. But then I was outside and a guy that was a gentrified came out and said that this is disrespectful what we're doing. The music is disrespectful. People were upset. People from all over the city, people who no longer live in the city but know that Metro PCS store, they started tweeting about it, posting on social media. This is bigger than Go-Go. So when you're trying to silence the music, you're also trying to silence our heritage, our ancestors. People started showing up outside the store and playing their own music. There were folks who would drive past the building, the Shea, where this resident lives, open their car doors and just turn up their music to full volume and assault the building with go-go, like, into the night. Why did so many people care about the music that was playing at this one Metro PCS store? It was about the store, but it was also about this feeling that their culture is being eroded. D.C. has changed so much over the last several years, over the last several decades. It's gotten wealthier. It's gotten whiter. D.C. is the most gentrified city in the country. Since 2000, the number of low-income residents being pushed out of the city or displaced from their homes and neighborhoods is at some of the highest rates. Even when you look at cities like New York and San Francisco, they don't compare to the district. A lot of the folks who grew up on GoGo are being pushed out of their neighborhoods or pushed out of the district entirely. And so this really encapsulated all of these forces, gentrification, culture shifts, racial tensions, all in one little package. So the GoGo store became a symbol. You see, we help a lot of people. We've been there for a long time. We, Most of the people that are still here, that original people that were here, we actually seen a lot of these people grow up. You know what I mean? And it feels like this was just the latest of so many things that have changed in D.C. and so many ways in which, like, the cultural touchstones of people who have grown up here, people who are from here, have evaporated or been bought out or been demolished or been built over. And so it felt like this was kind of a last straw situation where people, like, no, you are not going to take our go-go music exactly. from this Metro PCS store. They were fed up, and that was it, that once they once they knew that this was not just— the store decided to stop playing its music, that this was a gentrifier who said, I don't like it, turn it off, that exploded. But the D.C. native is just not a part of D.C.'s past. The D.C. native is a part of D.C.'s future. And we all got to work together to ensure that this city um, can't be its greatest self without the D.C. native, without go-go music, without mumbo sauce, without communities, right, that, that have helped establish what this city is. So then there were protests and there were rallies and even Mayor Muriel Bowser tweeted in support of the store and go-go music. There was a huge protest concert that drew people from all over the city. Yeah, because this wasn't just like a few people holding signs on the sidewalk outside. I remember biking on the night of one of those protests, not knowing what was going on, and thinking that like something wild must have happened because it was like like hundreds and hundreds of people crowding the intersection. You couldn't get through. They had to block off traffic. There were police everywhere. Yeah, it was, they it were was dancing in the street. Wale showed up. It was wild. And that's the point where politicians started paying attention. What did they do about it? 
Brianna Doe, who is the city council member who represents the area where the store is, wrote a letter to T-Mobile basically saying, you don't understand what GoGo means to D.C. And you might think you're doing the right thing by responding to this noise complaint, but you're actually harming our community and stepping in where you shouldn't be. That plus all of the press, there was a ton of publicity. There were, like I said, round-the-clock protests. I think that really put pressure on the company to take a look at what they had done and what was really happening in D.C. And so then the company says that they can bring the music back on. Yeah, within a few days after these protests started, the CEO of T-Mobile tweeted that the music should not stop in D.C. And what's been happening since then? Well, they've been playing their music. Everything at the store has pretty much returned to business as usual. They were getting a lot of attention because folks who either forgot that they were there or didn't know that they were there have been coming by. So I think it's really been a boon for business. But the other thing is this store still sells go-go music. They still sell CDs of live performances in the back. And Don Campbell, who's the owner, has been also trying to get this online sort of Spotify of go-go going an online library because a lot of younger customers don't own CD players. Uh, And he really wants to make sure that GoGo can live on even when the technology doesn't. So it's been a boost to him trying to get that project going. And Don't Mute DC, the hashtag has really transformed into a movement. And every time there is sort of a flashpoint that brings gentrification and all these other forces at odds, you start seeing it again. And a lot of folks sort of rally around that once again to to say, you know, this is part of D.C., this is part of us, and it shouldn't go anywhere. Go-Go has always been the voice of the city, and it's never going to change. It's always going to be the voice of the city. And I think for some people, there was a fair amount of hope in the fact that this Metro PCS store was able to bring back the music. Just because it's like, you feel like whenever whenever gentrification starts to hit a neighborhood, a lot of times it feels kind of inevitable that nobody in the neighborhood can really do anything to stop the way that things are changing. But at least in this one situation, they were able to stop it. Exactly. And I I think, too, it was very inspiring to folks that it wasn't just the black D.C. residents who were out in the streets saying something. There were white people, there were Latinos, there were politicians of all different races who came out in support of this store, of this business owner, and of the music. And I think that was really inspiring to folks because they have historically felt like these folks don't listen to them and they don't care and they have not historically been terribly supportive of go-go music. So seeing that, I think, gave people hope. I guess the community rose up. The community stepped up. I'm, I'm appreciative of that. I think there's a lot of the positive has come from this. Say we're on the national stage now. People are making original music now, going back to the way we used to. And I, I think that's going to be positive. And yet at the same time, a lot of the cultural forces that kind of brought this controversy up in the first place those aren't going away. And D.C. in many ways is becoming a more affluent city, a wider city. So where does that leave Go-Go and the future of Go-Go music? It's a great question. I think there was some new life breathed into Go-Go as a result of all of this. Folks who maybe had heard the music outside the store but didn't know what they were listening to now know what it is. 
Councilmember McDuffie, who represents Ward 5 in D.C., introduced a bill that would enshrine Go-Go as the official music of D.C. So there is a lot of momentum to make sure that Go-Go isn't going anywhere and that people who may not be from D.C. are aware of its cultural importance to the city and its residents. I'm going to tell you why I'm extremely happy. Because it wasn't just black people, it was everybody coming together. It wasn't just Washingtonians, it was people from outside of Washington. It was people who moved here to say, listen, I might not even like go-go music, but this ain't right, this is not right to strip one of its culture, right? Marissa Ling reports on D.C. for The Post. On Sunday, the U.S. women's soccer team will play the Netherlands in the World Cup final. And though the American team has become iconic for their prowess on the field, their symbolism goes way beyond soccer. What's so important about what they've done is all of this builds to a world where male deciders suddenly think it's okay for a woman to hold a different kind of job. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. It broadens the spectrum of acceptable female behavior, pay, ambition. You know, that's the real scope of this thing. That's what Title IX did in this country, and that's what the women's soccer global revolution is doing, I think, in some other countries. The U.S. women are led by star and co-captain Megan Rapino, And Sally says that the team is elevating the sport in a way that's forcing people to take women's soccer seriously. The women's soccer revolution really started in 1999. Welcome everyone to the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, California. With the great team that starred Mia Hamm and Julie Foudy and Michelle Akers, who basically won the World Cup at the Rose Bowl in front of a record audience and then came back and won an Olympic gold medal. It's been building slowly towards the one billion number, which is the viewers that they expect to get by the end of this tournament over the last 20 years. And it just seems like people really love this team partially for how good they are and partially because of their attitude and the way that they seem to be taking on this mantle? Well, I think what it's really about is a public embrace of a a kind of feminism. I think that, you know, whatever people's politics might be as far as Rapino and the anthem or Donald Trump. I stand by the comments that I made about not wanting to go to the White House um, with the exception of the expletive. My mom will be very upset about that. But I think obviously entering um, with a lot of passion, considering how much you know, time and effort and pride we take in the platform um, that we have and using it for good and for leaving the game in a better place and hopefully the world in a better place. Um, I'm not interested in answering any of those questions. We can get to the real reason we're here, which is a huge game. There's something that is sort of surmounting that in the public consciousness, which is I think that they've been waiting for a team like this for quite a long time. You know, so much of feminism can seem complaining and aggrieved. And uh, this team is sort of everybody's dream of what an interesting, powerful feminism could be. It's smart. It's irreverent. It's unapologetic. They have a lot of qualities that make their political stances uh, somehow really, really powerful and resonant with the public. And I feel like they're having this moment 
at a really interesting time where, you know, they're fighting this battle for equal pay to be paid as much as the men's soccer team is, even though they're like wildly more successful than the men's soccer team is. Um, at, at the same time, as, as a lot of women are thinking about these ideas and how they play out in their lives. Yeah, so they sued USA Soccer right before the tournament began, which is kind of the cardinal sin in athletics. Which, you know, you don't create an enormous off-the-field distraction for yourself when you're trying to win a really big trophy, at least according to conventional male sports strategy. And they kind of didn't care. You know, they're like, this is what we're doing. Come and get us. And they're also so fun to watch, which in some ways is a, is a thing that I, I think sometimes gets lost in how we talk about them. I was, I was watching the highlights from Tuesday's game against England when Rose Lavelle just like dribbled the ball through one of the England players' legs. It was like she was operating on a faster timescale than everyone else. And it's just, it's incredible. Look, nothing about them would be interesting at all if it didn't start with what you just said. It, it, none of it would matter if they weren't great. That's what's really wonderful about them is all the politics, all the arguing, all the accusations of whether they're too arrogant, you know, none of it even begins if they aren't just absolutely great at what they do. Sally, thank you so much. My pleasure. Sally Jenkins is a sports columnist for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Matt Collette. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Maggie Penman, Jordan Marie Smith, and Ted Muldoon. Our intern is Rennie Spronovsky. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil.